Rabbi Nick Renner and covering for Rabbi Bernstein's weekly Torah study as she is off with the women's retreat this week. You're not so. covering. You're giving not you covering. a gift Thank of you. your presence today because we're not going to get to see you a lot longer. Bringing the blessing of Torah, I will be sad to say farewell to this Kihulah Kedoshah and to all of you, fellow learners, fellow travelers in the journey. It has been wonderful, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to share some Torah with all of you this morning. Um, as I mentioned to all of you, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. This is why I wanted you all to take the JPS Tanakh. Since we're not just going to be in the Torah portion, we're going to be in Hebrew Bible as well. We're going to begin, though, in the Torah portion. So we are going to Tetzaveh, which is Exodus chapter 28. Somebody wants to just... <clears throat> Read verses 1 through 3 of 28. This is just a little introduction. You shall bring forward your brother Aaron with his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. Next you shall instruct all who are skillful, whom I have endowed with the gift of skill, to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. Perfect. When I say, if someone can read for me, I should just oh, say, if okay. Bert can read for me, <laughs> close to the microphone so everyone else can hear that. So that's sort of, I just had wanted to read that piece as a framing, essentially. This is just where we're beginning with this week. We are in this task of making these vestments for Aaron, for his service, as we said, for him to serve me as priests. Um, we're going to get a very detailed explanation of this garment, and I'm going to skip the details because there are an awful lot of them. Yes. But it but. does say make them with dignity and adornment. Very good. Which means they should be very special. And when we had all of our Torah covers made, we had a very fine artist do them, not some machine-made factory mm -hmm. thing, because we believe in having, in this synagogue especially, the work of hands that is beautiful adornment. Amen. That work that we have, the kavod that goes into it, that dignity, that respect, that honoring of it, uh, is a crucial part of it. Yes, We're and our windows and everything else in this building. Absolutely, 100%. The aesthetics of the thing are very important, actually, in terms of what kind of kavod it is, what kind of uh, respect or honor you carry with it, and what kind of uh, kavanah, what kind of intention it gives you in its usage. Um, this is, I appreciate that as a footnote because this is only going to become larger and larger through this conversation today. Now I'm going to skip over the details, the specifics of it. My apologies for skipping the actual aesthetic pieces, okay. but we're going yeah, to... On our, on our own. Well, <laughs> I invite you to go over some of these, the gold and the ephod, the urim and tumim, all of this, these pieces. We're going to jump to the end of this, so we're going to jump to verse 33 on the next page. The bottom of the next page, 174. 28. Do you want to read yeah. for us as well? Yeah, thank you. Okay. On its hem, mm -hmm. on its hem make pomegranates of blue, purple, and crimson yarns all around the hem with bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate all around the hem of the robe. <laughs> Aaron shall wear it while officiating, so that the sound of it is heard when he comes into the sanctuary before the Lord, and when he goes out, that he may not die. Perfect. And again, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm just full of all this today. Please, Sorry. go ahead. Pomegranate, mm -hmm. uh, there's a pomegranate guild of women seamstresses mm -hmm. who do ornamental work 
particularly of Jewish uh, themes. Mm-hmm. And the city of Granada is named after the pomegranate. Yes. Oh. Um, in both, I think, French, Spanish, and in Hebrew, um, Granada, that name mm-hmm. um, for pomegranate applies. Ramon, actually, is a little bit more um, technical, is a hand grenade in Hebrew, actually, as well, and for military because it service. Looks like a exactly, with all of those seeds. Pomegranate has great resonance within Jewish tradition as well. Um, the seeds are said to represent all of the mitzvot, the taryag mitzvot, the 613. Um, even though I've tried counting the seeds in a pomegranate, you don't get to 613, you get in the 200s or so, from what I remember. You have to stop um, eating first. Exactly. Well, that's the issue too. And then the pomegranate is also a symbol of fertility within Jewish tradition as well. Lots of seeds. Um, absolutely, with all of the seeds. What's this business about dyeing? We get this whole piece here about how the garment needs to look a certain way and be constructed a certain way and have all of these details as to its fabric and its quality and its aesthetics such that he does not die. Wow. Is it D-Y-E or D-I-E? <laughs> D-I-E. <laughs> as opposed to thinking, live and die. I was thinking about what the dying... Yeah. <laughs> no, very good. I appreciate that. It's a good. It's a certainly an apt pun to make here, but at the end of 35, when he goes into the sanctuary before the Lord, when he comes out, that mm-hmm. he may not die. First, it's an order. Mm-hmm. So you follow the orders. And second, colors have tremendous power in anthropology mm-hmm. and in our world as well. Mm-hmm. We use black as a symbol of death and... Mm-hmm. Asia, they use white as the symbol of death. So the, colors are powerful. Mm-hmm. The colors, if I recall properly from last week, okay. we discussed it. Blue, purple, and crimson were the colors that were that were the cover of the Mishkan. That's my understanding. That's right. Right. So yeah. there, there's, so he in a sense, <clears throat> the priests in a sense are colored to look like the Mishkan. It's a matching set. The ma- it's a matching set. Very good. Yeah. Well, but the, the, the issue, the question you raise is, what about dying? Yes. To me, it's the bell. Okay. It, 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 yeah, and you think, well, he's it's like a cow with a cow bell. So you know where the cow, so God knows that he's coming and going. That doesn't seem quite right. Uh, but it is true that that ordinary, nobody can go into the sanctuary except the priest, and so uh, there is a sense that, well, maybe it's got to do with the fact that the people are supposed to know he's going about his business. I don't know I can guess as to why he walks around like a cow with a bell. <laughs> bell's all well, and bell's also an alarm sign and a warning sign mm-hmm. and a wake-up sign. Bell represents a lot. Plus, it, <clears throat> there's so much in Judaism that mm-hmm. is hearing, mm-hmm. that is sounds as opposed to seeing. Mm-hmm. We say, Shema Yisrael, listen, and God creates the universe with words, so that the hearing thing is would relate to something else. So you, you you're taking us exactly where I wanted to go oh, from really? here. I okay. appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I actually want to go directly into the Hebrew here, mm-hmm. word by word, because... It gives you a quality to it that the English is missing a little bit. I'm going to do it, um, break up. Just um, This is just verse uh, 35 here, um, about him going into the Kodesh, the sanctuary. V'haya al aharon l'sharet, and it will be for Aaron in his service. V'nishma kolo, and it's sound. Kol actually in Hebrew is both sound and voice. The voice of it will be heard. Bevo'o el... Hakodesh lifnei Adonai uvetzeto, 
and in his entering into the Kodesh, the holiness, before Adonai, and in his leaving, the Loyamut, that he will not die. So this bell piece, Bert, that you talk about, that sound of it, nishma, what is heard, that aural quality to it, um, I think the Hebrew sells it even further in that the bells are supposed to be bringing this voice into this space as well. Um, means what? Voice. Is it kol nidre? Kol, no, that kol, that's a slightly <laughs> different uh, kol, spelled with a, uh, a kaf rather than a kuf. Okay. That's the one that means um, all. all. Exactly. So kol nidre is an Aramaic formulation, nidre, for um, all vows. Oh. That's right. Nedarim are vows. Um, and so this kol, kolot are voices here. So oftentimes in Talmud, when you hear the voice of God, you hear it rendered as a bat kol, the daughter of a voice that echoes in our time. This is about kol shofar. Kol shofar, very good. Holidays, yeah. Which is yeah. The, sound, right. the sound of the shofar, the voice of the shofar. And your, your coughs and your coughs separate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always have to look these things up in terms of the spelling of it, but that was one that, um, that I knew off the top of my head that that's a slightly different kol, but you're right to ask about it as well. <laughs> So what's this about, that he will not die going into the holy? Rob, I think you started to allude to it about this holy places, the innermost sancta, that if you enter into it, the consequences can be dire. Some of you uh, may have heard us talk about, I think in the high holidays, the Kodesh HaKodeshim, this idea that the innermost sanctum of this place, certainly this wandering encampment that the Israelites have now, that would then get translated into the great temples that stood in Jerusalem. And they all had this innermost sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, this place where God was supposed to have dwelt in our world. Nobody was supposed to go into it ever except for the high priest. Exactly. And even that person, this was a scary thing. Um, yeah, well, wasn't ahead. it just with the Ten Commandments? There was mm-hmm. this whole sense that the people couldn't get too close to the mountain. Yes. Because if they heard the voice of God, they would die. And um, I think Rabbi Bernstein talks about yeah. a nuclear reactor. <laughs> that there, there's a sense that the presence of God is like the core of a nuclear reactor. And if you get <clears throat> get too close to it, you can just burn up. So Was it Aaron's sons? Yeah, these Nadav two. and Avihu. Yeah, yeah these two. Uh, uh, that so I well, want to draw a slight distinction. Different. Yeah, from Nadavna Vihu, it's not entirely clear what happened with Nadavna Vihu when they get um, schmiced by the whole thing, uh, because they bring Ish Zara, they bring some kind of strange or alien fire to it. So with their uh, situation, their demise seems to be linked to what it is that they did in the space rather than their proximity to it. Um, but I want to emphasize just how fraught this space is. Um, we have accounts, you know, in the Talmud talking about when the high priest would enter the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies in the Great Temple, would enter in the one day of the year that he was okay to enter in, and that was Yom Kippur, and he would actually go in with a rope tied around his midsection, because if he died in the middle of this, no one could go in to get him. That's the end of it, because this place is so holy. Um, Bert's analogy about the radioactivity of it um, is perhaps not... A, uh, a wrong analogy. Um, I, I don't know if Rabbi Bernstein got this from my teacher as well, but my teacher, Dr. Elsie Stern, not a rabbi, a biblicist at the Reconstructionist College, used to teach about 
the holiness of God that we get in Leviticus, she said to think of it much like nuclear power. If it is harnessed correctly, it can bring great benefit and great energy and great vitality to the people. But if uh, handled improperly, it can, it can wreak great destruction. It's not that the nuclear power is angry with you um, if it goes wrong, and it's not that it's pleased with you if it goes right, but it's a matter of creating the proper conditions in which you can um, harness it, or in this case, even approach it. Yeah, did you have a hand? Well, <clears throat> the implication, though, would appear to be that, that um, <clears throat> I don't know how to put this the right way, God's... Uh, awareness or the focus of God's consciousness doesn't necessarily have to be in one particular place at a, at a particular time. Okay. In the sense that you would you would think that if 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 God was actually paying attention to what was going on inside the Mishkan, if Aaron were appropriately dressed and had the bell on and everything, that everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. And so. If he has to do all these things so that he doesn't die, it could be that, well, God is perhaps dispersed throughout the entire universe, and he may, be, he may not be actually paying attention, so to speak, to what's going on in the Mishkan. And there's these, these it's almost like if, if, if things aren't being done properly, it's almost like programming, programming the mm-hmm. system to say, if you don't hear the bell, zap whatever is there. If your one or zero is off somewhere in the programming, zap whatever. Yeah, very good. Um, and this is going to take us to our next point. Bert, did you uh, have a point you wanted to jump in with as well? Well, this seems like kind of the opposite <laughs> of modern Judaism in mm-hmm. the sense that we don't, uh, today we don't look at God as being concentrated in one place. Right. And there's the the... the, the the holiness of God. I mean, even if you go to the prophets, Kadosh, 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 Adonai vote that that the holiness of God is everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I, I think today, particularly for progressive Jews, we don't see there being any particular place. And in fact, we look for God everywhere, in ourselves and everywhere. So how do we get from here to there? Which is God <laughs> is in a very particular place. Mm-hmm. That's my question yeah. for you. Mm-hmm. This is a... a a, a great evolution. That How do we is. get from there to today? If I may, this is Anthropology 101 again. This is a society in which tribalism all had the one singular God, the one altar, the one place. And it's a reflection of the times in which they were living. They, they, were, pagan, they were pagan cults that had many, many different gods. Yes, but so, they, they had a place. How do we get from there to here we so we could do we could do anthropology 101. We could also go the route of Rambam, who says that look, did God really want sacrifices? Did God want your animal, your barbecue? Did God want your stuff? That no, but Rambam says that. Uh, Maimonides says that part of what's important about this is that it's comfortable, it's accessible for us to have a relationship for God with God. So that well, God doesn't necessarily want all the sacrifices of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. That God had that laid that out because we were coming out of a paganism, as Bert mm-hmm. mentioned, and that was something that was familiar. It was a way into having a relationship. Rambam continues the metaphor. Rambam says, does God want us to say words of prayer? Does God want us to say these particular Hebrew words in this sequence? 
Maybe not. Maybe God doesn't need that. But it's a way in. It's familiar. It's a way for us to connect to divinity. Rambam even continues and says that perhaps in some distant future, we will have found some kind of perfect way to contemplate, to dwell within uh, realizations or conceptions of divinity. And that would even supersede prayer later on. But for now, prayer and words are working for us. And so it works for God. Rambam, Maimonides, sees our relationship with God as being on a certain kind of trajectory, a certain kind of evolutionary place like that. And so I think Rambam a thousand years ago would say, yeah, we're going someplace with that relationship. Um, He at least would draw sort of a map out from there to here. That's just one answer. We could do Anthropology 101 as well, but I actually want to twist this around a little bit in terms of... Why is called Rambam? So Rambam is an acronym um, for for Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. So they just turned it into an acronym, Rambam. Um, They do that with a lot of rabbis. Um, UNESCO? Like UNICEF? Like UNICEF, yeah, exactly. Except he's a rabbi. So you get it with Rashi as another one. Um, Shlomo Yitzchaki is his name, and that gets shortened into Rashi, Ramban. Um, There's lots of them. So that's how we go from Maimonides to Rambam. Um, The way way I want to twist this, 35, Aaron shall wear it while officiating. Ugh, what a dry translation. Um, in the Hebrew, lisharet, um, in service, to serve. Officiating isn't bad, but this question of, I think the question there to me is to serve in service of whom? To serve whom in this place? Aaron is both wearing it in this sort of divine service in this whole drama of um, tending to the nuclear reactor as we talked about, but who is he doing this in service of? The people, that's right. So that piece of service goes both ways. Aaron is this emissary for the entire people um, to God in what he's doing. Yeah? But that that was, at least that's what I thought I was saying, because they wouldn't know what he's doing if they didn't hear the bell. Right. They couldn't see. And so you can ask, who is this bell for? As Bert mentioned, the sound, that aural quality of Judaism, of the word, of the voice, as we hear it, is really important within Judaism in terms of even the basic acts of creation. Uh, so who There's is, a whole other evolution here mm-hmm. because what you just described mm-hmm. is not what Judaism is today. Yes. We don't have people who are our intermi- intermediary with God who do it for us. And that, again, I think was a big revolution in Judaism. There's an argument that the Judaism of today actually is not the same religion as this. Correct. So where Bert is sort of going is, um, and I would go too, is the academic argument, the scholarly argument that what we're seeing here, we're probably better off not calling Judaism. We're probably best off describing an understanding as the ancient Israel um, Israelite worship, yeah, Roots. exactly. Um, that Judaism, as we have it, as we've inherited it, um, I would suggest is very much a function of the rabbinic project, both those yes. destructions that take place in and around Jerusalem right. and the innovations where we go from sacrifice to prayer, we go from priesthood to rabbis, we go from um, Bait Rishon and Sheni, the first and second temples, mm-hmm. to um, Mikdash Me'at, the synagogue. The, the ancient Israelite life gets uh, sort of refracted through the rabbinic uh, project in the Talmud and for centuries and so what we have is Judaism is probably best described as something a little later I think you're right there. I've heard that one of the distinctions between Judaism and our sister religion Christianity 
is that we don't have an intermediary between us and God. Mm-hmm. Which is very different from what this is. And Correct. the Catholic Church still has bells. Right. That Correct. Ring when you're and intermediaries, these yes, emissaries yeah, that are the conduit in this way. Right. Um, Rabbi Bernstein and I were talking the other day about sort of Judaism and Christianity, and it's not that Christianity came out of Judaism, but rather Judaism and Christianity are both daughter faiths of the ancient Israelites. And they kept pieces of it that we did not in many examples. But I want to get back to this piece of emissaries. And this is the reason that I told you to get a brown book rather than the women's Torah commentary. I'm going to ask you to jump to page 1792. It was a very keep one finger in where we are with Exodus because we may come back to it. And if you didn't, don't worry about it. I'll give you the page number again. It's fine. Um, 1792, and look what book we're in. Say it a little louder so everyone can hear. Esther. Esther. What holiday do we have coming up? Forum. Forum. All right. Now you see where we're going with this a little bit. So. Groggers. Exactly. This next story we're jumping to, story of emissary, isn't in Torah. We're in Esther chapter 4. And, oops, we want to go to one page previous to this. Esther 4, verse 6. We're going to hear about Hatach. Um, the, set is, the scene is set with Haman's plot we have here against the Jews of Shushan, and Hatach is this eunuch slash messenger of Esther, delivering messages back and forth between Mordechai and Esther. I can get a brave volunteer to read verses 6 to 16. Oh, cool. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the palace gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and all about the money that... Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Shushan for their destruction. He bade him show it to Esther and inform her and charge her to go to the king and to appeal to him and to plead with him to her people. When Hatach came and delivered Mordecai's message to Esther, Esther told Hatach to take back to Mordecai the following reply. All the king's courtiers and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there is but one law for him, that he be put to death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter to him may he live. Now I have not been summoned to visit the king for the last 30 days. Quick pause here. Are we seeing the connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone? Yes. All right. You can't enter without the king's scepter. Enter, entering into the innermost uh, sanctuary can be lethal. Go ahead. We'll okay. go to 16. When Mordecai was told that Esther had said what Esther had said, Mordecai had this message delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you, of all Jews, will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. Only the contrary. If you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. Then Esther sent back this answer to Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast in my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my maidens will reserve the same fast. Then I will go to the king, though it is contrary to the law. And if I am to perish, I shall perish. 
So Mordecai went about the city and did just as Esther had commanded him. All right. I imagine at this point you're seeing a number of these linkages here between three that. Three days? The three days? Say more. Sinai. Sinai. There you go. There are a lot of linkages between this passage here in Esther and this Parsha we have this week. I found out about this linkage uh, this week actually from Rabbi Bernstein, who learned about it from Ramban, another one of these rabbinic acronyms we have, Nachmanides as well. Oh, Nachmanides. Yes. This is Nachmanides from the 13th century. He started out actually by linking the garments. That was how he got here. Um, Regarding the priestly garment that we saw before, the last detail um, in back in Exodus, we had that laundry list of all of the details of the construction of the thing. The very last one that I included when we were reading that piece was the bells and the pomegranates, that alternating piece. That's the very last piece are the bells. He picks up on the bells in particular. Nachmanides Ramban says, what's the purpose of this sound, this voice? He says, and I'm quoting here, the bells are so he, the priest, can go before the master as if to asking permission. For one who comes into the king's house is subject to death at the order of the king, as we see with Achash Verosh. Nachmanides is the one who links this properly. He said that unless you get a certain kind of divine permission, um, you die. He says that's the point of the bells. That's the point of that voice we hear there, is that the bells are actually asking God for a certain kind of permission. So to return to Esther, all of the king's servants and people of the provinces know that any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence. The king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there is only one law for him that he may be put to death. Only if the king extends his scepter may he live. And I, Esther, have not been summoned to see the king. So we have Esther is scared here to go to this innermost place. I'll bet the high priest was scared too (laughs) over those centuries that we had Uh, these innermost sanctuaries and this one person was permitted to enter this holy place one day a year. They're both entering into the sacred place where if you do or say the wrong thing, you die. It's as simple as that. You should be scared, in fact. But at the same time, you have to do it. Like it says about the priestly garment, it's for Aaron in his service, in fact. Um, On behalf of the Israelites, on uh, for God in this service. And that's what this Esther piece is all about too. That's what Haman says. You're not going in for you. You're going in in greater service. You're going in on behalf of all the people. You're not going in to preserve yourself or your father's house or whatever it is. You're going in for all the Jews. And maybe, just maybe, Mordecai says, you're in this position because you're supposed to be. It's supposed to be you. It's not that you have to summon up the courage and can decide you want to. Maybe yes, maybe no. But maybe you're in exactly the place you're supposed to be because of what it is you're called to do in this way. And I'm young people... Thousands of young people marching in to the seat of power, demanding change. Very good. Because Say more. They're supposed to be there. Absolutely. Tell us more about these young people and the circumstances in which they're marching. Well, they're they're marching for the greater good. They're not marching for their own. They've already been lost. Their children have been lost. They're going in now to protect the future. Explicitly, you're speaking about in the aftermath of the Parkland yes, shooting, correct? Yes, exactly. These young voices are so powerful. 
and we have high schoolers all over the country marching. Uh, marching, marching, actually walking out of school, walking out of their classes, many a times walking out with their teachers um, in opposition to what they see as wrong. It's not that they have this choice that they can decide to do this or not or whatever. They feel that they, they are in this place and they are called to this kind of service. Reason. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Someone who but thinks I, he's the king. But I, 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 I think there has to be some discrimination because what we're speaking about, if you want to take a first thing, is the evolution from this mm. into yes, this. Yes, I agree. But it has, this is a hard wire for authority. So, in some, in some one of the important distinctions here, and you're correct to draw this distinction, one of them is this place, the seat of mystery, this place right. of ultimate mystery, of ultimate divinity and holiness, and entering in with a certain kind of divine intentionality. The other one, we're dealing with the whims of a human king, who the guy decides whether or not he extends the scepter to you. I would suggest, though, that the commonality that Nachmanides wants to draw is that both of them require entering into a dangerous place, to step out of a place that is comfortable, to step into a place that is dangerous on behalf of a greater good and on behalf of the people. But yes, you're right. One of them is a capricious human authority. The other one is the ultimate seat of mystery in the world. Right. Um, and it's worth separating those out. So when we're looking at it from this evolutionary point of view, even if Judaism, you want to say Judaism now is different from how it was then, there has to be some essential kernel, some kind of truth that So I'm reluctant to use evolution here because I think that the model that we're getting with the priestly piece has to do with stepping into the unknown uh, in service in service of the greater people, whereas this kingly one um, almost feels like a regression. It's like a step backwards into submitting to authority. So uh, to me, it's not exactly a straight line. It's uh, multiple models that I want to hold. Yeah. Transformed. So Moses is almost a little bit of a... Moses is like the exception to the rule in some ways. Moses is... Um, we get that peace when Moses dies. Never again would a prophet arise like Moses, one who speaks to God, Panim El Panim. Moses is the one who actually does get to go in and speak face to face. These other people, part of what's remarkable about the priesthood is it's not 
the prophet who is just sort of ordained in quite the same way. There's this lineage. It's this role of service that they're cast into. And they, in spite of their own fears about the seat of mystery in this sense, have to step into it. Um, they don't get to know God in the same way, but they're called to serve the people and they're called to serve despite their own trepidations and despite their fears. They have to tie that rope around their waist, as we mentioned, from the Holy of Holies and step into the ultimate place of divine mystery in order to serve the people. Um, Esther is called to a certain kind of service as well in, uh, in perhaps what she's worried about, in defiance of the royal norm in this way, to defy that authority, to push the envelope in that sense. She's called by her uncle Mordechai who sees her as being in a certain place, as being able to act in a certain way, um, or at least sees for herself a certain kind of authority in the way that we see young people seizing for themselves a kind of agency in walking out of their classrooms and taking part in this movement, in this uh, opposition to the kinds of violence and death we see. It's about um, one of them is is a much more ordained thing in terms of the priesthood and being this is sort of what you are born into and what your role is and you have to figure out how to take hold of it. The other one is about the circumstances and the sands shifting around you and the kind of wisdom and perception to sense that, okay, maybe I am in the place that I need to be in order to seize this moment. Other thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you raise a very interesting question about what is the thread that ties all this together Mm -hmm. and it's what we're doing right now. And it's this book. And that is, which the Torah is called an Eitz Chaim, the tree mm-hmm. of life. And that we are a people, as, as other, there's other peoples who have their say, we have a sacred text. And we constantly reread this text in the context of a changing, a changing life. Had, we, had the text been less ambiguous, we would have thrown it out a long time ago. And the very ambiguity mm-hmm. of it Okay, is what permits us to keep on looking at it. And it's not just the text, because our tradition, to me it's so strange, our our tradition, there's this text, right, and then the original Torah, and then we added other books to it, and then there's this whole thing about Talmud, which is a further discussion of this and what it means, and sometimes it goes off in incredible directions that you would look at it and look at the original text and say, how do those two connect. But we have over the years, for whatever reason, said, this is our book. There's something in here. You want to call it divine or you want to call it the... I like to call this the intersection between the divine and the human. And that's what we gather around. And we gather around it traditionally at services, or we gather around it here every Friday. And it is what what Rabbi Renner calls the Jewish enterprise that we continue, that we go back, could we find wisdom in another book? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. But this is our book. We haven't found that other book. Well, so, this is I'm our book. This is, I'm not that traditional. That's why. I, I, I'm not I, saying there isn't wisdom in other books. But if, if you ask, what is the thread in Judaism? Mm-hmm. The thread is that even today, the most new age, untraditional Jews or whatever you want to call them, still go back and try and keep their feet in the sand of, of these texts. So full stop for just a moment. We could take actually, I think, what um, Bert's comments here 
Um, you probably ought to just excerpt that at some point to be mm. an introduction to Torah study <laughs> as an enterprise in the podcast about what it means to be rooted in this book and that it is an Eitz Chaim, it is a living thing. You probably ought to go back and just oh. excerpt that to be like a short, yeah. you know, minute or two, ex- like introduction, a welcome to Torah study because that was lovely. Um, Can I, I appreciate something? it. Please. Uh, this relates to the ringing of the bells. Yes. And I want to go there next. Oh. Yes. I'm thinking that no matter how insightful we are in the sands of Torah, I love that metaphor, um, there still is a difference in responsibility between us and the rabbis who are devoted into a special space that requires respect. And that's the ringing of the bell. That you don't, you don't dare ring the bell and disturb somebody who is carrying a bigger load than you in terms of thought and responsibility toward people. And so, well, we constantly chat. If we're talking about rabbis today, one of the things about us Jews is we constantly challenge them. And they challenge each other. And they challenge each other, and it, which is one of the th- you know, one of things to, I love about Judaism. It's a religion. We're a tradition of questions, not a religion of answers. We still expect our rabbis to walk on water, though. Well, I understand. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody else's rabbis walk on water. And sometimes they fall in, but yeah, at least in our tradition. No, we are the people of Machlok at the Shem Shemaim, this idea of an argument for the sake of heaven, this idea that it is not just permissible to argue with sacred text and religious authority, but it's virtuous, in fact. Um, This is our inheritance, in fact, from that rabbinic project. Um, The reason I want to go back to the bells. Yeah, go ahead. So it seems to me like the relationship between the um, the two texts that we're reading with your modern example is that um, the meaning of action is created by first imbuing space with power through ritual and intentionality. And once that space is imbued with power, then uh, the action itself has higher stakes. So the same way that leaving classrooms has higher stakes because we've imbued the classroom setting versus the outside setting with specific meaning based on our like rituals and conventional social norms, then the same way that like these um, inner sanctums are imbued with power and therefore entering and exiting them comes with higher risk. You've laid the ground for exactly where we're going now. So, um, I appreciate that. Well, (laughs) well met. So, we're going to go back to Esther now. The beginning of chapter 5, I'm just going to read this. On the third day, Esther put on royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, facing the king's palace, while the king was sitting on the royal throne, etc., etc., etc. The rabbis get hung up on that one line right there. It is written, on the third day she dressed herself in royalty. That's the exact translation of the Hebrew. Um, The Talmud latches onto this. In Masechet Megillah, this whole tractate of Talmud that revolves around Esther and some of the questions that come up here, they quote the book and they say, um, as it is written, and on the third day Esther dressed herself in royalty, they finish the quote, and they say, shouldn't it say garments of royalty? If she was dressing in royal garments and royal clothes, it would have said, you know, royal clothing in a way. No, rather, she dressed herself in Ruach HaKodesh. She dressed herself in holiness itself, in the Holy Spirit. She wrapped herself 
with divine and holy intention. That's the difference with the priesthood here. The priest is wearing these bells, and Nachmanides says the bells are essentially knocking on the door, hey, can I come in? What Esther is doing is actually wrapping herself in holy intention. Her purpose is holiness itself. That's what she is wearing, that not some kind of, um, as Bert points out, um, blue or crimson or purple garment or whatever it is to indicate royalty. It's the spirit. It's the kavanah. It's the intentionality that she's bringing to this. That's the royalty. That's the holiness of what it is. I'm opening the floor here. What do you all think about this? Because this, to me, speaks to this space about those students. This is about reframing what it means to walk out of a classroom in that way to completely change what the intentionality is around it. Go ahead. It sounds like where you were going earlier with Rashi's. uh, With Ramban? Whichever one said... Do you really think that what God wants is all these sacrifices? Oh, yeah, Rambam, yeah. Do you really yeah. think that, that what God wants is all these prayers? What God really wants is for people to live in a certain way that is that is holy, and that's basically, it sounds like what Esther did. She, just, she represented that uh, with this royalty putting on whatever it meant. Mm-hmm. State of mind. Yeah. The Exodus port passage, it goes on for some 30 verses all about the details of this thing that the priest would put on and wear and it looked like this and that and it was these colors and embroidered this way and that and whatever. Esther just wore intentionality. Esther just wore holy purpose. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, does that have something to do with voice? There's mm-hmm. a vibration around voice and there's a vibration around intention. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of like love. You can't touch it, but you can feel it. You know it. So when somebody says something with a certain intention, there's a, there's a kind of connection and understanding from That's that. That's the bell. Right. Versus just somebody saying the words or putting on the clothes with all the right colors. But there's it's different because of that something about that, that the vibrational quality it's of like the intention. Or a... Or, or even the voice, because like voice is talked a lot about from that it that it that it, it's moved upon the breath and, and the word breath is spirit, which is spirit, mm-hmm. right? From the ancient ruach, yes, oh. right. So it's all. I think some, somehow there's something with that. Again, sound. That, Esther, that's right. The bells are. Yes, they have a voice, but the voice is sort of predetermined by the construction of the thing. In Esther's position, she actually has to be the one to give voice to it. Out of this divine intention, out of what it is that she robes herself, she has to find her own voice, which we're going to see through the rest of the scroll of Esther. We're not going to read it all here today, but you can see the way in which she speaks in service of the people to save the people. She doesn't have these bells to do it for her. She has to find, to access that ruach, that breath, that spirit spirit in order to save the people in that sense. This is another really important distinction, and I think it highlights where one of the differences between uh, these two stories and suggests to us that perhaps what we're seeing from these students is more in the model of Esther than it is in the model of the priesthood. Right. Other thoughts? Yeah. It reminds me of um, an acting technique where when you're doing a specific act, when you're doing a specific physical activity, you want to find an activity that's meaningful, urgent, and difficult. Um, because by creating 
or by performing an activity that's all three of those things, then you're raising the stakes and it's like a way from the outside to increase your emotional attachment and response to the activity and therefore to the intentionality of the scene. So although the actual action of putting on a robe isn't actually her objective in her scene, which her objective is actually to talk to the king and get something from that interaction, but the robe, by doing an activity that she sees as meaningful and urgent and difficult rather than just simply putting on some clothes, then the stakes are raised and she becomes more emotionally involved. This becomes a set of armor of sorts. It allows her, I mean, both of them you could think of as a set of armor. Aaron's is the one of the priesthood. In order to enter into this incredibly dangerous space, he is protected by virtue of this shield with these bells that can knock and get him a certain kind of permission and access. She, what she does is even more bold. It's a much greater spiritual transformative exercise in that, yes, she puts on the clothing, but she assumes herself a certain kind of armor to protect her from this dangerous thing that she knows very well may kill her. They fast for... No rope around her waist. No rope around her waist. Well, the rope was really for if the priest dies, if the thing goes wrong. It's in order to haul him out. It's not really protecting him as much as it is to protect the people who need to fish him out. She had no tether in that sense. She had no ejector seat, no way out. She was stepping into this place of the ultimate danger, but she was protected. She was armored by holiness and her own divine intention with fabric that was as thin as you know the shirt that I'm wearing and yet it was as thick and as powerful and as compelling as the thickest and heaviest of armor to allow her to go into the most dangerous place in society. Did you, uh, was there a hand over here somewhere? Yeah, go ahead. One thing that strikes me is this I'm going to really draw a strange connection. Awesome. (laughs) Please Uh, do. To the two poles of Jewish prayer. Mm -hmm. The one that has to do with it's got to be the exact words. It's got to be the exact way. It's got to be the exact colors. Keva. Keva. Yep. And then the other thing, which is intentionality. Kavana. Kavana. And a lot of modern Jews reject prayer because they think all that prayer is it's is keva. the keva is having to follow the exact words and whatever. Then the people on that side would argue, well, if you just, it's important to pray from your heart to have that intentionality but if that's all that is and it's not informed by anything then it's just it's just feeling so it strikes me as you know we have Esther here which is kind of the Kavanaugh intentionality emotional piece of it that you were talking about and then there's that other piece of it's got to be these three colors to which somebody well why can't you have yellow in that and the answer is well, not supposed to. Not supposed to, because it says it says this, and and the, the it, Jewish tradition has gone back and forth between these two poles, which have simultaneously existed for so long. I mean, when we think of Hasidic today, we think of traditional ultra orthodox, etc. But in fact, the Hasidic movement began with people who who were doing a revolt. Right against, they said, you know, uh, Judaism become ossified. It just became repeating the same words over and over and over again. So it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge for all of us to hold these two poles, and it's not the same every day, or the same every week, or the same every year. We go back and forth between it, 
but to realize it doesn't necessarily just settle in one place. Beautiful. I think the actual manifestation of this keva and kavana, Esther put on royal apparel, that's the keva, that's what's fixed. That's right. the, you know, the thing right in front of you. The rabbis in Masechet Megillah say, no, this is actually what she was robing herself in was the intentionality in that way. And so we wind up with this thing that essentially holds both poles, both the keva, what is fixed, and the kavana, what is the intentionality. Go ahead. So it seems to me that this story is illustrating her intention to seduce the king as a very wonderful ambition. So what one scholar I was looking at reading this, I don't want to go completely into this, but I think it's worth noting, was that Esther sort of becomes uh, a microcosm of the Jewish experience. The Jews, or the Jewish experience in exile, this is an exilic, Jew, an, uh, an exilic story, a story of diaspora in which the Jews don't get to determine their own fate. They don't have a standing army. They don't get to legislate this. They have their will. They have their political calculation. They have their ability to negotiate behind the scenes and to use their whatever their charisma or their political cunning or what have you, but they can't use force of arms in, in essence. They have and so a voice. They have a voice. They do have a voice, but they have to work very, very carefully wow. in and around the seats of power because those aren't spaces that they own. And so when you talk about the seduction of Esther, um, one of the scholars I was reading, and I forget the name offhand, was talking about how it's not that the Jews in... Um, communities in exile were seducing the authorities, but they, they were having to work with tools of soft power, of diplomacy, of charisma, of um, very careful negotiation in that sense because they couldn't pull the levers of power themselves. And so then that way, Esther is emblematic of the Jewish experience in diaspora. Um, was there a hand? Thank you. Did you have a hand? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, the tools of soft power um, are interpreted differently based on gender relations. Based on gender, absolutely. Would it just be seen as um, diplomacy if she was a male rather than a female? The soft power of Mordechai is probably different than the soft power of Esther. That's absolutely true. Um, The way you refract that through the experience of gender, um, I think, is crucial here. I want to end with Purim itself. This is sort of the lesson in some ways of Purim is what it means to... Uh, wrap yourself up in these things, in these holy intentionality or purpose, to enter into the place that is forbidden and the place that is dangerous in that way. On Purim... Is that why we get drunk on Purim? (laughs) That's right. On Purim, everything gets inverted. Everything gets twisted on Purim in this sense. You have masks and you have costumes that conceal people. But in this Purim revelry, there's also an invitation to break the conventions, to twist what is conventional, normal, acceptable, what is inevitable in this world. There's an invitation to break out of those things. Um, You have this famous imperative. That's exactly where I was going to... Um, from there, that you should become intoxicated ad yada until you don't know the difference between Baruch Mordechai and Arur Haman, blessed Mordechai and cursed Haman. Yeah, that's really dangerous. What immediately follows that is a story of two rabbis that do this and one kills the other. Um, it's subversive, even. So should we stand between you and Amy? At this <laughs> yeah, have no fear. We uh, we we only we only consume in revelry and joy together. But. In this chaos of Purim, there's also an invitation to imagine things differently. You have Esther 
for whom her Jewish identity was actually concealed from the king. Um, And on top of that, in terms of what is concealed, God is actually concealed in this entire story. God in the Purim story is much more like God is for us. In the Exodus piece that we saw, God is commanding, go wear this thing with the bells and then you can come in and it'll be fine. God isn't a character in the Purim story. The rabbis have a field day talking about where God actually is, but God's voice is not obvious in that world. God's voice may not be obvious in our world either. We may not hear the voice, bat kol, as the rabbis say in the Talmud, the daughter of a voice, of an echo, coming down and telling us what to do. We have to discern what is holy. Much like Esther, we have to embark in this kind of discernment in figuring out what is sacred in this place. Um, And this invitation to try and break out of what is sacred, to dare to do something that is subversive, in fact, this is considered to be deeply and profoundly holy. There's mystical tradition that talks about Purim being more holy than Yom Kippur. For in fact, Yom Kippur in Hebrew, Yom HaKippurim, Yom Kippurim, Yom the day, Ki, that is like, Purim. (laughs) For Yom Kippur is just a little bit like Purim, in fact. Um, And there are other rabbinic traditions that talk about how once Mashiach comes, we're going to be able to overturn, once the Messiah comes, we'll be able to overturn most of these holidays that we have. We won't have a need for Yom Kippur and a need for atonement in this way because of the kind of messianic era that we'll be in, but we will still have a need for Purim. Because Purim is, if Yom Kippur is about recognizing our narrownesses and the places in which we are confined and pledging to do better and wanting to step away from our sin in the ways in the year forward... Purim is about daring to break what's conventional. Purim is about daring to transcend the limitations. Purim is about taking what we have inherited and saying, no, we can see something that's bigger than that. We can see beyond that. We can actually see beyond the masks, beyond uh, the things that we hold up keeping us from our true selves, separating us from one another, that we can see to what is truly concealed in terms of our own humannesses. We can transcend some of the brokenness of the world and we can find joy. But we can actually, it's this invitation, this call, this imperative to dare to do something differently, to break what is normal, (laughs) to break out of the conventions, everybody saying, you can't change that, you can't transcend that. This Mm -hmm. political dynamic or this piece, this paradigm that we've inherited is uh, unassailable. Purim rejects that. Purim says, for this day, once a year, dare to break that. Dare to break what it is you think you've been fated with in this world. May that be the blessing. May that be the imperative that we use to step into Purim. To, uh, to dare, to find, to build, to break that which is holding us back. To build something that is more sacred, that is holier in this world. And with that, I will say Shabbat Shalom. Amen.